Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. It is time to begin seeking to have one mind in Christ, developing concord, accord, concordia, harmony, by means of the scriptures, the word of God, which we trust to be more certain than our own, which we are clear that it is clear, that it has such a clarity we can speak it again back and so find unity with each other. You're listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I am your host this week and next week as well, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, my guest in studio with me. Band of brothers, you could say. Dangerous men, you could say. Uh, the usual suspects. Oh, I should turn your mics on. Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millset, Illinois. And Sean hey, S- so glad to be here. Sean Smith of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois. Uh, good to have you guys. Good to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our buddy Peter is not, uh, Peter Slayton's not here. He's on his way to uh, to do some reporting for the Missouri Synod, and I'm sure our our fearless John Sias is uh, busy with dots and numbers that we're all glad he does and we don't have to do. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we'll just sit here and study the confessions. We're, we're picking up in the apology again. This is the defense of the Augsburg Confession, the way that we respond to Rome's rebuke of us, basically saying that our confession of the Christian faith or of Catholic Christianity, historic Christianity was incorrect and it all really revolving around where we are going to be for some time now, the Article 4 uh, on justification, on how we are to be made righteous in Christ's sight, in God's sight. We're picking up a paragraph 25 where at this point, Philip Melanchthon is kind of giving some short, uh, how do I say it, uh, short, quippy, summations of everything he said this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong he's going to say right we could away. almost call it sound bites <laughs> you could you could i don't know that these would go so well though as like segues you know yeah probably K- not kfuo it is false that we merit forgiveness of sins by our works but it is true and biblical yeah that's so right we're good with that well and that's the important thing then here is i mean just because something uh, isn't necessarily fun doesn't mean it isn't valuable so let's let's try to pull these these apart here there's well, and can I stop you for one second? Sure. I'm going to anyway, so deal with it. Um, but I don't know if we've gone over um, the f- there. There is kind of an outline to each of the articles, but especially Article Four here. Mm. Um, Melanchthon is using it, it. It comes from the Scholastic Method, which they're actually using in the confutation and so forth. But there's kind of a four-part uh, method of of argument here, and it, the the first part is the problem, and then the arguments against, and then the arguments for, and then the authors kind of answer brings it all together in a summary um there's not like a clear-cut distinction of where those parts are throughout the article i would probably argue that this is in the the section of the arguments against so if that kind of helps kind of gather what what we're doing here and where where the arguments kind of flowing um uh 
as we talk about it today that you know we've stated the problem in the early uh, paragraphs and now we're getting into the arguments against their position right right i think what you're talking about there too in terms of the the style with which melanchthon is arguing which is a very medieval lawyer-esque style it is the reason that this document in the book of concord is the most obtuse, uh, if I can say it that way. It's the most difficult to just jump into and read for fun, right? Mm -hmm. Because he is being very meticulous in the way that he presents a case, as if he's before a court, and this is going to be going to trial. And, that, and that's his tradition and background, yep. too, is, yep. as a lawyer. And and also, just to juxtapose it, in the Augsburg Confession itself, Article 4 is probably the shortest article in the whole confession. Uh, we kind of took it for granted as Lutherans, oh, they'll agree on this. This is like what Christ is all about. It's the key center thing of the gospel. Um, and then when they didn't agree with it, when they didn't affirm it in the confutation, um, then Melanchthon's like, all right, now I'm got to hit them hard because this is so important. So then it becomes the longest article in the apology. And I don't want to give the impression that it's not valuable because right. what he does do is he makes the final definitive case on the matter. I mean, it, you really can't dispute with it by the end of the dang thing. And it's absolutely fantastic stuff. But I think that this article does drive us back to uh, other parts of the apology, especially to Article 2 on sin mm -hmm. and original sin. And so my encouragement as you're listening along is to hear how this article speaks of sin and what is and isn't sin, because in our American culture today, we have this concept of sin and sinfulness, like sin is doing something wrong. We talk very clearly about sin as an action. We don't talk about sin as a habit or about sin as a uh, way of being or even sin as the general imperfection that we have that apart from from the grace of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, we cannot be free of. But that is exactly how we talk about this here. Yeah, sin is a disease of the spirit. Yeah, and one that we cannot free ourselves from. Um, and, and again, I'm just going to say it one more time. There's all this news right now about uh, the, the the ban or the, the the suspension of immigration. It's all going to court, and they're maybe going to push it to the Supreme Court. Well, okay, so if you actually had that fight happening and you were going to the Supreme Court, how much would you want to have an airtight case? You don't want to have everything in a row. Well, that's exactly what Melanchthon's doing. He is, he is preparing for what has been a court battle before this, and at least in the public eye, is continuing to be so via, via this writing. And so that is why it's extended and, and takes basically every biblical verse into into consideration. So he's laying out then these arguments against and we're, and we're stating that they are they are false. So there's a series of several this not true statements here. 25 and following it says, so it is false that we merit forgiveness of sins by our works. You would think that'd be pretty clear. It is false that the people are counted righteous before God because of the righteousness of reason. It is false that reason by its own strength is able to love God above all things and to fulfill God's law. In other words, reason cannot truly fear God, be truly confident that God hears prayer, be willing to obey God in death and other divine matters, not covet what belongs to others, and so on. Yet, reason can do civil works. Now, I guess it was just three and not four things there. That actually rings a bell with the uh, the actual uh, confession of the original sin in... Mm. Is it in the Apology or is it in the actual confession in the Augsburg Confession? I, I don't recall. But this idea that our real problem is a lack of fear of God, a lack of 
ability to believe that he is there and listening to us and, and desires are good, that we don't just do that. If, if anything, when I say the fear of God, if anything, we fear and hate God, but we do not fear and love God. That, that kind of fear is not there. And there's just this point where it comes down, the gospel isn't common sense. Yeah. As, as it talks about reason, in, in my head, I, I substitute the word reason for common sense. And we want to talk about common sense Christianity, uh, simple Christianity, simple faith. And faith is simple. That doesn't mean it's logical. You can't write uh, some kind of logic theory on the gospel. But that's how we who are spiritual bean counters really like to try to do it, where we want to say, oh, this is completely and totally okay that we can do good things. And so he says, there is no such thing as a good work without faith. Uh, as the Old Testament prophet says, our good works, uh, what we think are our good works, are really as bloody rags, especially without faith. And so... Everything that we do, like uh, like King Midas's touch, where he touches everything and it turns to gold, everything that sinful humanity touches is tainted and corrupted and completely and totally screwed up by sin and sinfulness. It's possible to do good things for your neighbor without faith, sure, and Melanchthon is quick to point that out. Yeah, we allow that civil works can be done. However, civil works aren't good works, not before God. Uh and that's just how it is. Right. And, and when you say good works, you mean in the sense that they are deserving of merit or, or eternally valuable. Exactly. You know, and, and the illustration that I've used in the past to try to describe this is selfishness. Uh, th- that no matter what I'm doing, and this is even as a Christian, right? even as a regenerate, I believe I'm a Christian, I'm a regenerate human being, regenerate man. If I do something good for somebody else... Even if I'm all the while telling myself, do this for the right reasons, here are the right reasons, there's still some little inkling part of me that's like wanting to get something out of it for me. Uh, Another example would be the way that we view children. Um, I love my children tremendously. I feed them. I I pay for stuff for them all the time. I, I freak out when they do something wrong. Why? Why do, because it reflects on, on me. Your children, eh. You know, I, I I would stop them from getting hit by a bus, right? But but they don't reflect on me so much, so I don't worry about it so much, right? And we're all like that, just by nature. So I'm doing a good thing. I'm raising my kids. And there's part of it that really is trying to do it for their good and not for mine. And yet, right there with me, right, like a shadow of my right hand is my own sinfulness, uh, tearing it uh, tearing it down, basically, making it a, in, not a good work in God's sight, save for then the grace of Christ, which covers it all, forgives it all, so that the work stands in Christ, yeah, and, and what we really have here too is 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 a real crisis because we we have a desire as as born again believers in Christ Jesus to do good works, but we have to have the right understanding, the right order towards that. If if we come at it with this reasonable or or this reason approach where where I have to come with my own good works, it's never going to be good enough because God demands perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would be like with with your children, uh, and some parents take this approach. Like, I mean, nothing is 
nothing is ever good enough, right? Mm. And we know what that does to children. I mean, right. just just it creates such a terror for them, and it's hard to grow up in those households. Um, how much more so with a holy, righteous, and perfect God who demands perfection? I mean, we get that in Matthew uh, chapter five, verse forty-eight. You know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what's demanded of us. And so there, we need to find a righteousness that's in Christ, um, because if if we try to approach God with our good works. It's never going to be good enough, and and we're going to have a disturbed conscience. And so I'm going to get to my first Walther quote that yeah, I promised last week, and uh, this is from his Law Gospel. Um, but Walther says this: he says, "How could one comfort a disturbed person? He is already assailed with doubts about his faith. He would have to despair with such a doctrine. Rather, one must seek to convince him that the Savior is there for him, has already forgiven him, and has already accepted him." As soon as one makes faith even the least of a requirement for justification, one takes from such a person all the comfort of the gospel. Mm. In other words, it, it just robs them right away from Christ and what he did. And it, and he's also pointing here to objective justification. Mm-hmm. That is outside of me. I simply uh, put my trust in that Christ has already done it. He did it over 2,000 years ago. I can't go back and change what he has done in history, in time. Uh, it, it's It's there. It's done but I can put my trust in it. I can cling to it and, and hold tight to it and, and there find a joyous life. Yeah. That idea that, that faith is not a thing that justifies us by having it, but it's the empty receptacle into which the promises of God are poured. So justification is by faith. That is, it's through faith. It's by Christ and his work into our faith. And we, we believe in him and, and we cannot even do that by our own reason or strength, but it has to be, given to us. Yeah. And this article plays right into one of the big challenges that CFW Walther had as he got here to the United States and as he was serving as pastor and in all the other roles that he served, where there were people saying, oh, it's possible to fulfill God's law and it's possible to live without sin. Um, and this is total sanctification. Yeah, total sanctification. Mm-hmm. And they had a they had a method for it. And these are our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the, the old school German Methodists really concerned C.F.W. Walther because they were teaching that, well, it's possible you can have total sanctification, but here in the Lutheran Confessions in Apology 4, it says there is no such thing as total sanctification. On this side of Christ's return, there is no complete and total sanctification. Our righteousness, our holiness, that be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, line is only able to be fulfilled in Christ. And if we are looking to ourselves to be the embodiment of righteousness and to do exactly what we know we ought to be able to do because we're good Christians, well, that's not going to happen. We simply commend ourselves to Christ. We continue to struggle and to strive to live as God has called us. We we certainly don't throw out the law, not at all, but we do acknowledge we can't do anything without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, we, we do throw out the law when it comes to justification. We, we do, do not right. throw out the law when it comes to what the law is given for, which is to teach us what right and wrong is. Yeah. Right, exactly. I want to, before I, we can keep going on this, but there were four. I knew there were four. I, I should have read the next paragraph, paragraph 28, because it's in this same section that the following is also false and dishonoring to Christ. People do not sin who, without grace, do God's commandments. That is this idea that if I keep the outward act, 
I haven't sinned. Is what you were talking about earlier, Peter, where the the disease within me makes even my good works still filthy rags. Uh, exactly. Anything else before we go on to the uh, the Augustine quote? I have another Walther quote. Okay. Kind of drives it home of the right relationship that I was talking about earlier. If you want to insist on this Walther guy, I don't even know who he is, but you, you see, there's to a think big he's, statue of him right, right behind you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dear listeners who, who don't get to be in the studio, CFW Walther is lording down upon us from the hallway right outside where he we're is. recording. There are big windows, and so we can see him. And for those of you who haven't seen a picture of CFW Walther, when it's safe for you to do so, when you're not driving uh, or whatever it is that you're doing, you should look for a picture. And and I will assert he might be the ugliest theologian I've ever I've ever seen picture of until Peter. Yeah. But moving on, I love Walter. Points he's, for Sean. He's my spiritual father. I think he looks pretty dope in that yeah. statue right yeah. there myself. I, I, and I, I want to steal is, it, but it's stone and it's really heavy. Is he holding a pipe? And I shouldn't steal. Everyone look no. at it. No, it was in his hand. He's holding a Bible. Yeah. I swear it looks you, like he's holding a pipe. You're making us look, and, and then there's <laughs> silence on the radio, which is not I a good. I know. Thing. But well, getting would, back to the discussion does. at hand, I think it does. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is a good good quote from him. Again, from his uh, law gospel, um, and speaks to what you were talking about that he was facing um, in the uh, German Methodists and so forth. And so he really kind of writes this against them, or says this against them. Lectures: the gospel does not require anything good that a man must furnish. Not a good heart. Not a good disposition. No improvement of his condition, no godliness, no love either of God or men. It plants love into his heart and makes him capable of all good works. It demands nothing but gives all. Should not this fact make us leap for joy? Mm. That's the right Lutheran understanding. That's why we point to baptism. It's it's at, It plants all of that home. I used the image last week of um, faith as it receives, right, these gifts of God, is like a fire. There's two parts to a fire. First, it consumes fuel, and second, it produces heat and light. And likewise is our faith. When this is planted home into you by God's grace, right, we apprehend it by faith. Um, We're consuming the fuel of God's love, and then we cannot help but be uh, producers of love towards God and love toward our fellow man. We actually catch this in our post-communion collect in the liturgy, that this would strengthen us in faith toward God and in fervent love toward one another. And so we're just driving home that that point when we see Christians who are not living in a loving way or not producing good works. I, I don't need to continue to beat them up with the the law. They need to hear the law, but what I really need to have them do is grow deeper in the gospel. Yeah, I mean, if there's, the if there's a Christian who is living in a uh, a sinful life and I am able to convince them with the law to stop, I haven't really helped them. Yeah. Now, I've helped them help their neighbor, but they haven't necessarily gotten better. Right. Yeah? They only get better when they're forgiven for that sin. So mm-hmm. the, the law has, has a place if one uses it justly, right. and that is for the condemnation of our sin. And the, So we continue to be condemned by it, and as Christians then, being condemned by it, that doesn't mean we stop trying. We're actually encouraged to do more. Mercy begets mercy, as you said as well, that uh, the mercy which is poured out into us will not be able but to change us mm-hmm. to be merciful unless we resist that mercy, right? Resist the Holy Spirit, in which case we're just unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Huh? Um, moving into this uh, this extended quote from Augustine, first uh, Melanchthon says, in regard to kind of everything that came before, look, we're not alone on this, right? We have testimonies in favor of our belief, not only from the scriptures, but also from the fathers, which effectively say, look, we're not saying anything new. We're not making this up. We're teaching 
Christianity as it's always been taught. For in opposition to the Pelagians, an old uh, heretic group that taught that you could, by your own reason and strength, without the word of God actually even coming to you, climb your way up to God just by being good enough. Against that, Augustine argues at great length that grace is not given because of our merits, that is, because of our good works, what we earn. In the work on nature and grace, he says, if, nat- if natural ability through the free will is enough for learning how one ought to live and for living aright, then Christ died in vain. Then the offense of the cross is made void. Why may I not also cry out about this? Yes, I, I will cry out, and with Christian grief I will rebuke them. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, as Paul says in Galatians 5. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto God's righteousness. Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Uh, you know, Augustine, uh, an early church father, still read as a philosopher in, in many classes for Western, Western lit and whatnot. Uh, a guy who we don't agree with everything he ever said, but when he was dealing with, with grace, he was our best friend. Just, uh, absolutely uh, in love with the fact that he stood for, effectively, the Lutheran understanding of the gospel way back when. And as a point of historical trivia, Luther was an Augustine monk. And so Luther spent his time in the monastery really digging into Augustine. And that's probably one of the reasons why Luther spends so much time quoting Augustine when he does and why Melanchthon and Luther's other colleagues do too. Um, That, but more importantly, because Augustine gets grace. Uh, Well, it's it's true. The the confessions in general seem... Not just the confessions, the confessors, the Lutheran teachers at this time, they seem to really have known their church fathers way better than I do. I mean, they read them. They they engaged with them in study. They considered what they had to say valuable, even if it was wrong. I think they would even like say, these were the greats who came before us and we must learn from them. I think it's a Chemnitz who says, uh, there is gold and straw in them. We take the gold, we leave the straw behind. And Augustine is a giant. He's just an absolute giant in the ancient church. And so the and fact he that he comes a out whole ton. and he comes out so strongly on grace, not works, that's the whole beating heart of Christianity uh, that, that says a lot to put that here in our little legal brief that we're submitting to the court, right? Well, and, and, and you recognize why Augustine came to that conclusion is because he himself wasn't really raised in the faith right. and or, or, you know, kind of had some exposure to it, but was brought to the faith. And, and, and this reveals a truth that we, that we all recognize that there's no shortage of the law in any faith or supposedly anti-faith, which really kind of becomes a faith of its own. Um, there's no philosophy out there in the world that is devoid of law. We're all kind of reckoning with how to be better people, make the world a better place, happier, and all those sorts of things. There's only one place in the whole wide world that you actually hear the gospel. Mm. And that's in Christianity, right. and 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 so it is a big deal. I mean, we we have heard um, there's multiple number of Muslims out there um, that have converted to Christianity, and they all say, you know, like don't don't even bother with the law when it comes to to ministering to the Muslims because they'll do it better than you. Right. Really, they right. really hone in on that. What Christianity has to offer is grace. Yeah. Complete and free gospel, good news that rescues and saves me. Uh, and, and that's really what, what we need to hear because, again, we 
we know that what is demanded is perfection before a holy and perfect. It's, it's a radical idea, and I'm not trying to, to split hairs with that word radical too much, but it really is compared to the other religions of the world, off the charge, bizarre, out of left field, out of heaven, literally. And even though Augustine doesn't quote 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 18, for the word of God, I'm sorry, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is uh, after Paul has been talking about where is the debater? Where is the wise man of this age? Because nothing's going to make sense of the cross. And if you're saying that you can be saved apart from the cross, or that the cross is somehow icing on the cake to the strength of your faith, if the cross is icing on the cake of what you're able to do as a, as a righteous person, then you've missed it. You may as well be completely cut off and severed, as it says in Galatians, and that Augustine does quote, so as Christians, we run and we embrace what seems to the world to be the foolishness of the cross because that is faith, that empty receptacle that holds on to the promises of God. And so we cling to those promises, to the, what the world thinks is foolish, that is the power of God for our salvation. You listen to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO, messenger of good news. You're hearing it here. Jesus Christ is Lord, coming back to give you grace. We'll be back in just a moment. Worldwide KFUO salutes our day sponsors on this Tuesday, February 7th, 2017. Today's day sponsors are Rusty and Alvira Backus. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO in celebration of the 25th wedding anniversary and in thankfulness to the Lord for the friendship of Dr. Andy Bartelt, who performed their wedding ceremony. Once again, we say thank you to Rusty and Alvira Backus of St. Louis, Missouri. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash jobsboard. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. The 44th annual March for Life is over. Hundreds of thousands of people from around the country demonstrated in Washington their opposition to abortion on demand. In the past, mainstream media has given the march scant coverage. Was it different this year? Media Research Center writer Katie Yoder and I talk about this 2.30 Wednesday on World Lutheran News Digest heard on Worldwide KFUO. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. December 5, 1955, Martin Luther King launches the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. That was the day that we started a bus protest which literally electrified the nation. 
four days earlier when Rosa Parks, an African-American woman, refused to give up her seat on a bus for a white passenger, she spearheaded a movement that ultimately ended segregation on buses in the South. In 2013, at the dedication of a statue honoring Rosa Parks at the U.S. Capitol, then-President Barack Obama said, Ms. Parks, alone in that seat, clutching her purse, staring out a window, waiting to be arrested. For now, we see through a glass darkly, Scripture says. We so often spend our lives accepting injustice, tolerating the intolerable. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. matters seeking to find agreement unity in mind strength of faith in thy strong word the one strong word of god which we know can be heard confessed repeated said again and holds true day to day age to age it does not change doctrine is reality and life i'm your host pastor jonathan fisk i'm here with peter ill of trinity lutheran church in millstead illinois and pastor sean smith of st paul's lutheran church in winehill and emmanuel of west point illinois we are in the apology to the augsburg confession article four we are picking up right around paragraph 31 but first pastor smith was uh, at wit's end so wanting to share this uh, this amazement that the confessors themselves are dealing with which is that how could anybody and this, this is just it how could anybody miss grace yeah, well, and we went and looked at the the Walther statue. Uh, oh, during well, the that's break, more right? important than Grace. Yeah. And and I I think I contend it's a handkerchief in his hand uh, <laughs> that he's holding, and he's crying over the fact that you would like give up Christ and what he's oh, all about. That's fair enough. Was that a good connection? Yes, it was. Uh, you're 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 impressed. I can tell. Um, but uh, no, seriously, uh, that that's why the the Lutherans are. I mean, and Melanchthon is just so surprised that they're denying this because you're really denying Christ who he is, mm-hmm. what he came for, and what he's all about. I mean, and you're essentially saying, we don't need Christ because we can do this on our own, and, and we just have to stir up enough emotion towards, uh, and, and we might use Christ in that kind of motivator, but then Christ becomes a lawgiver, and that stands right against the confession. There are places where scripture. us and the Roman Catholics are good friends. There oh, are yeah. things we agree yeah. with. I mean, the March for Life I was just at a week ago, it, without the Roman Catholic contingent there, man, we would be just a pathetic bunch, really, trying to stand for life in this yeah. country. But when it comes to this issue and the and the great division and the cultural division that resulted from that, it's not like it was just Germans versus Italians cuz, right? Uh, this is really about... What does scripture say about how eternal life comes? And for that reason, it's it's no joke. And it's not something you're free to just kind of like go back and forth on. Not if you care about how you're going to stand on judgment day. Yeah. And, and there's so many times that such controversies come out of this thing. Now, to, to, to be no doubt that there are times when there is, quote unquote, controversy that is centered around personality or political issues and so forth. But, you know, a lot of times they look at the Reformation, oh, it was a merely political thing. Mm-hmm. It was a personality thing. It's just quibbling over minute details or do we even still need to quibble over these things? We face the same issues today um, when we see um, people who call themselves Christians promoting these ideas, mm-hmm. right, that, that, that are false. Um, you are really robbing from Christ. 
and and what he's all about. And that's not good. And so we are just going to stand here and we're going to confess. We're going to have concord and agree that Scripture says that Christ and his work of redemption is the basis of our justification. And to take that away takes away Christ. Mm. And... And you don't have much hope to look forward to if you take away Christ. No, not once you've tasted of this idea. I, I think it's possible to be uh, happily inconsistent and unaware of the false teaching and how it's uh, how a, a, a preacher who is halfway semi-Pelagian, uh, how they're stealing faith from you every week, and you can remain a believer in that. But once you've learned to tell the difference, it's like it's like going to some food that's been mixed with uh, dog poo, you know, and you mm-hmm. just you just can't do it anymore. And Melanchthon mm. is going to continue to advance the same argument. He's springboarding from this really, really great Augustine quote, and he's going mm. to push forward into the Gospel of John, and he's going to maintain that uh, that radicalness of the Gospel, and he's going to keep that uh, that awe and that wonder on what's going on there. It is, it is such a revolutionary idea. It is not, again, one that would... Uh, would destroy truth, would destroy the law, but it is so different than the law that it is, in fact, a different word from God. All right, let's 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 check that. We're going to read a couple paragraphs here to, to bring the whole idea together. So picking up verse 31, John 8, 36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, by reason, we cannot be freed from sins and merit forgiveness of sins. Why? I mean, do you follow? It's because the Son's going to set you free. So reason can't set you free because it's got to be the Son who does it. In John 3, 5, it is written, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But if it is necessary to be born again of the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of reason does not justify us before God and does not fulfill the law. So every one of these verses is like, look, this is proving the point right here. If it is the Holy Spirit that does it, then it can't be me. (laughs) Uh, um, Next verse, uh, paragraph 32, Romans 3, 23 says... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means, uh, Melanchthon here, they totally lack the wisdom and righteousness of God, which acknowledges and glorifies God. Likewise, Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Which, again, is to say that the natural human being, the way that we're born in ourselves, it's not just that we're like not believing in God. We hate him. We, are, we despise him. We are hostile to him. And by virtue of that, we cannot submit to God's law, even though we were to keep it outwardly. But we're so quick to get defensive and say, oh, I'm not that bad. Everybody sins and it tis a flesh wound. We can get over this. And we try to not justify ourselves because we know, theologically speaking, we can't do that. But maybe we can make ourselves a little bit less opposed to God. Right. And so we'd like to, to cling to that as much as we can. But again and again and again, here comes Holy Scripture. No, you cannot be free apart from the Son. You are a poor, miserable sinner, but the Son has set you free indeed. You didn't do any of this, but the Son did it for you. And so on. And here comes the word of God continually declaring, you are set free by Christ and you are made righteous by him, period. You can't do anything for yourself. I think the next the next paragraph as well it demonstrates what uh, Sean's point was earlier about the, how can you not get this? So what he says, these testimonies are so clear that to use Augustine's words in this case, they do not need a keen understanding, but only an attentive hearer. 
Like, like the, and this is what you were saying there too, Peter, in a sense. Look, you got these verses and you basically have to decide, I'm not going to pay attention to what that says. I'm not going to let the words mean what they obviously mean. I will pretend a different reality also that I don't have to believe in grace. Also that I can keep my own self-justification. And that, as insane as that is, that's our natural state. So we all, it's not like you and me are, we're in here and we don't do this anymore. No, we still we still try to climb up by our works every day and convince ourselves we're valuable. Yeah, huh? it reminds me of a guy in a garden who once said, "It's the woman that you put here with me, God. It's not that I ate the fruit that you told me not to eat from. It's not that I stood by when my wife did this. Uh, it's it's her fault. It's your fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's not really so much my fault. And ever since then, we've been trying to get out from under the crushing weight of the law, but we can't." Only Jesus frees us from that crushing weight of the law, and so he does. And when we get confused about this, I mean, there, there's just so much scripture. I mean, they, they could have really just said, read the Bible, and, and that would have been a good that summary. That is kind of what he's yeah, saying. Yeah, that I mean, is what he's saying. Because, you know, as we go through the three-year lectionary series uh, in most of our churches right now, I mean, Matthew 5 is the the last several weeks of the gospel reading. It's coming up again this week. And it, and it just kind of drives it home. And last week we had, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. And then he gets a little further, and he says, and oh, by the way, the Pharisees, which are trying to live by the letter of the law, right? And they're trying to do the, the good works. Um, they're keeping the Ten Commandments on the surface of things. Mm-hmm. But uh, let me explain what the Ten Commandments has always meant. You know, even a, even a man that looks at a woman in lust has committed adultery, broken the Sixth Commandment. And he just takes all of them and expands them so much to the point. It reminds me of a conversation. I wish I could remember which professor in seminary I was having this conversation with, but I was talking about applying law gospel in a situation I was uh, encountering in my fieldwork experience. And, uh, and, and he, and I said, you know, I kind of let them go away and they, they were kind of still clinging to some hope that they could do some good here. And he said, no, you go chase them down and you kill them. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, go hit them with the law harder. Right. Uh, don't let them cling on to any of that because that's ultimately the effect that it needs to have. It just needs to bring us to the point of death. I tell you, uh, though, die to self. Adam is a squealy, squirmy little guy oh, when you is. get him down with the law. When you yeah. got someone, I mean, good Christians out there, we all do this. We all do this. But like you spend your life in the church and you you slowly just start to, to it's going to happen. You're going to start to believe in your piety more than in Christ. And we, we do it ourselves every day. What uh, my I'll confess my own recently. I've been working really hard to say the catechism in the morning. And so now what happens when I say the catechism in the morning? I think. Aren't I a swell chap for saying the catechism in the morning, right? <laughs> yeah, and so immediately, I begin, yeah, I, begin to, I begin to think of myself. And when, when you're confronted with that, particularly by your pastor, especially if it's like maybe a new pastor who's come in after an old pastor left and he had a relationship with him and everything, the new pastor's got a different way of bringing that law to bear and it like, it gets the Adam good. Man, does Adam fight back hard. It just doesn't want to get pinned down. He, he wants to hold on somehow, some way. And what we're saying to you now is like, no, like, do like the Superman, like rip open the chest and say, drive that sword deep, kill me with this thing because the comfort of the gospel on the other side of that, that's what keeps uh, keeps it fresh, keeps it alive, keeps you hoping. Yeah? Should I finish up paragraph 33? You got... Yep. All right. So again, these testimonies are so clear, to use Augustine's words, that they don't need a keen understanding only an attentive hearer. That is, if you would just get your own head out of the way and let the Bible speak, you'll find there is no debating this topic. If the carnal mind is hostile against God, the flesh certainly does not love God. 
If it cannot be subject to God's law, it cannot love God. If the carnal mind is hostile against God, the flesh sins even when we do outward civil works. And even when you're doing good works, you're carrying your sin right there with you. Your selfishness is dripping from it like a sticky icker. If it cannot be subject to God's law, it certainly sins even when it has deeds that are excellent and praiseworthy according to human judgment. Uh, it was in Luther's Heidelberg Disputation uh, a little bit in the reading of the Treasury Daily Prayer, I think it was yesterday again, that he's, he says that the, the real threat is not our evil deeds, it's our good works. That's the real threat because they're the ones we want to trust in so much. Yeah, what what are you going to put your trust in, mm-hmm. uh, especially on the last day? But even here now, it bears out. I mean, you, you can put your trust in your works, but I don't, I mean, yeah, like you were saying earlier, I mean, you're, you're not a full Pelagian, you're maybe a soft Pelagian. I don't yeah, know. Right, but, uh, right. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I struggle with that. And, and then lo and behold, you know, life gets a little busy and now I'm not saying my catechism. And so I, it becomes very keenly aware to me how, how woefully insufficient I am. It, Doing this right. And the thing that you had been hoping in now becomes the accuser of your conscience, right? right? Because you've been putting it in the wrong place. And so then I have to kind of self-justify some other way to get out from Uh underneath that. And that's what the Adam does. It just, you know, he's constantly looking to escape. Just kill him. Um, Just put 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 him to a, a watery grave. And then we step from what happens in our mind between our ears into what happens in the sinful flesh. And what a great reading here as we're uh, kind of starting to anticipate a little bit the entrance into Lent. And here's a time when it's appropriate for us to say, whoa, not only is my mind completely and totally corrupt, but my body craves and covets those things that God hasn't given. And so we have a time to uh, set aside, to repent, and even for the Christians who choose to do so, to fast and to say, dear belly God, you Hmm. aren't the boss of me. Uh, What I put into my mouth isn't what sets me free. It isn't what makes me holy. It isn't what brings me comfort because I have the living bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. And when I have the living bread from heaven, what's pizza? You know? Um, Tasty. Well, okay, fair. But it's not that we have to go out and please our belly God. We don't have to go out and please the flesh. Uh, Pastor Smith or Sean had talked before about this idea that Jesus talks about with, uh, with lust and with sexual immorality. We try to, in all kinds of ways, find ways to satisfy our flesh, uh, not just our mind, but our body too. And it's not going to work because it is only Christ who can bring the peace that passes all understanding. We can keep jamming things at ourselves to try to feel better Apart from Jesus Christ, it isn't going to work. You mentioned in Lent and repenting and kind of having this season that is there for stepping back and thinking twice, um, reminding me of the, the fifth chief part of the catechism in which Luther admonishes us to confess our sins and says, before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And then this question, well, which are these? And this is, these are just good words for, for Lent, right? Uh, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Pick whichever one you are and think about what you ought to do in that role. And you won't have, you'll, you'll have plenty of sin to confess, right? Plenty of shortcoming to find. Have you been disobedient? 
unfaithful or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? I mean, if you think you're getting to this weekend and going to the divine service without having had to say yes to any of those, you probably shouldn't go. You know? or, or better yet, call your pastor before you go. Golly, well, and have him like work and help you find the sin, right? And that's where Luther finally says, you got to just put your head, hand against your heart and feel you're beaten and believe that the Bible says it's corrupt. And but that's what we're arguing right now in apology against people who don't believe that. That's the problem. Exactly. Yeah. In the right for individual confession and absolution, there's that wonderful line that I take great joy in. I take great joy when my own pastor does this too, when uh, the pastor will gently probe and question the confessee, not in a way to violate their privacy or in a way to make them feel bad or to judge them, but to assist them in making their confession. And then they get to hear those wonderful absolution words as the called and ordained servant of Christ forgives a Christian who firmly believes in Christ's forgiveness. Every time I've gone to confession, I go in kind of believing that this time he's not going to say it. This time I'm going to lay it bare and he's not going to say it. He's going to say, oh, I'm done with you, Fisk. But every time, every time the forgiveness is there, man, what a powerful experience, subjective justification, I think, uh, of, of having that faith being pressed into me. Uh, it's a gift that we, we need to use more often. Um, well, and because yeah. it convinces you that the Savior has really done this. Yeah. You can't go back and change it. He's already done it. And so... Trust it, believe in it, and and that's also the nature of sanctification, um, is is really just believing more and more your your justification. Yes, uh, I mean that's that's the right Lutheran understanding of it. Uh, you you, you want to see the growth and good works, um, just believe more and more in and not not that it's incumbent upon you, but as you grow deeper in the gospel and its gifts, and and this will produce wonderful and vibrant churches. I mean, uh, I, a pastor that spends his time listening to his parishioners confess sin and absolving them, um, I uh. promise you will be more effective for the growth of the church and for the betterment of the church than any other sort of programs or any other sort of thing that we introduce and fill our pastor's times with. Um, I'm not complaining of my own situation here. I have wonderful folks that uh, come to me as their pastor uh, and expect um, me to speak God's word and absolve them. Uh, they don't expect me to do programs. So I'm blessed in that. But I see the state of some of our sure. churches around there, and especially of other denominations that we fill up with all sorts of things um, that aren't the gospel. Hmm. And, it's like Martha, right? Yeah. You busy yourself with many things, but right. uh, she's chosen the one thing needful. 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 Yeah. Um, you got me really excited, so I'm semi-interrupting you here. Uh, when you're talking about the relationship that develops between a pastor and his people when absolution is being practiced, I remember being asked by a, a member of the youth group when we we were doing an emphasis on uh, absolution church-wide, but so in the youth group, they felt free to ask questions. And, and the youth basically said, well, well, pastor, after someone comes to you and confesses their sins to you, won't that kind of ruin your relationship with them? Won't you now think less of them and, and have to look down on them and see what they really are all the time? And I just, I just boiled out of him. He's like, oh, heck no. Now I know you're just like me. <laughs> I can finally like love you really because we're on the same page and I know you're wrestling with the same faith I'm wrestling with rather than walking around this pretension of goody two-shoes Christianity. We all got our game hats on, right? Instead, you and I are walking in this need, this common shared need. So if anything, it, it, it drives that pastoral relationship home yeah. even deeper. There's a reason they call it a father confessor. Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah, and, and we even 
it, it's helpful for folks to understand too that we. I think it's a Luther phrase, right? That when we confess, we confess into the grave. And mm. and that's how I go to my father confessor. That's how I go to my pastor um, for confession is I know that this isn't going to change my relationship with him. I know that this isn't going to be talked about out town there because I am confessing it into the grave and I trust my pastor. And any pastor that violates that, um, he is going to have a really bad day on the day of judgment <laughs> To say nothing of legal, to say nothing of legal ramifications right, in, right. in today's age. Right. Um, but uh, um, so I really don't fear that. that. That's really never been a thought in my mind. I go in and I lay it all bare because I need the gospel gift uh, for me. And I know the other day I had a I had a really bad day, and I called my pastor and I at least got to talk to him on the phone. I wasn't able to to get to go see him for absolution, but we had a wonderful uh, visit over the phone. And I mentioned later that day to a friend of mine, yeah, it's been a it's been a really bad day, uh, but I got to talk to my pastor and that helped a lot. And he did a double take and he looked at me. He goes, Pastor, you got a pastor? And I said. Absolutely. Every Christian needs a pastor. And so to have that pastoral relationship to be both the recipient and the giver is a wonderful gift, but just a recipient to gift enough, man. And I absolutely revel in that, that I have a pastor God's called and ordained servant for me. I get to go to him, like Sean said, and confess my sins into the grave. And that's where they go. And out of that grave comes the absolution flowing with its baptismal sweetness. And I am set free. But just five minutes left here. Let's see if we can finish this, this chunk of paragraph. Beginning at paragraph 34, 35. Uh, the adversaries consider only the teachings of the second table, that is, the second half of the commandments that have to do with how you treat your neighbor. Yeah, don't murder him. Don't commit adultery. That's all that he's saying Rome thinks about when they're talking about righteousness. And this contains only civil righteousness that reason understands. Content with this, they think that they fulfill God's law, i.e. when they haven't actually murdered somebody. In the meantime, they do not see the first table. You shall have no other gods. Don't take his name in vain. Uh, how does Luther say it? Uh, hold his word sacred and gladly hear and learn it which commands that we love God, that we declare God is certainly angry with, with sin, that we truly fear God, that we declare God certainly hears prayer. But the human heart without the Holy Spirit either feels secure or despises God's judgment, or in punishment flees from God and hates him when he judges. Therefore, it does not obey the first table. So contempt for God, doubt about God's word, and doubt about the threats and promises dwell in human nature. People truly sin even when without the Holy Spirit they do virtuous works. This is because they act with a wicked heart. As Romans 14 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. For such people do their works with contempt for God, just as Epicurus does not believe that God cares for him or that he is regarded or heard by God. Epicurus was a, a, an ancient philosopher who basically just said that. He also taught to pursue whatever you can while you can. It's kind of his main philosophy. Life is fleeting. Live hard, play hard. Pretty much. Yeah. Last, sentence, last sentence. <laughs> this contempt ruins works that seem virtuous because because God judges the heart. And and there's a lot that can be said there, but that last part, God judges the heart, that's not good news. They're not saying like, oh, you're off the hook because God looked at your heart. It's the other way around. Because God looks at your heart, even your best works aren't really any good because he sees that little bit of sin, that little bit of selfish pride that you attach to every good thing that you do, even as a Christian. And without Jesus, that ruins all of it. With Jesus, it's all covered. And even the way we put that, 
oh, he sees that little bit of sin. He sees that little speck that I got. Yeah, right. Uh, As and, if that's all it is. And the old Adam is is already just kind of twisting away at those words. Well, I just need Jesus to come get this little itty bitty bit. Uh, other than that, I'm a pretty good guy. But the fact is, we're not a pretty good guy. Not at all. Uh, we are terrible, horrible sinners, and that's borne out in our lives. And we need God's grace for all of it, because God, in his omniscience, in his all-knowing power, knows everything about us. He knows the number of the hairs on our heads. And if he cares about how many hairs are on my heads, how much does he care, not just about the actions that I do that are sinful, but of the thoughts and the words and the desires that live in me that are sinful? Uh, like Jesus said, it's not, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. You make me think of David saying, preserve me, O Lord, from hidden sins. That The things that I think are the big sins, the ones I go to confession and like lay on the ground and like, oh, this is so bad, they're the ones I see. <laughs> you know, I don't see all of it. I don't see the rest of it that's there. And that's, to your point, Peter, there is no small speck here. You know, there's a lot of dirt. Whenever I read this section of the apology, I, I it always comes to mind Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, mm -hmm. Matthew 19 is one place in one of the Gospels that that shows up. It shows up in, I think, three of the Gospels. Um, but uh, that, that story really gets it quite well. And that this rich young man comes to him and he says, what must I do to be saved? You know, asking that kind of fundamental question. And he says, well, you know the commandments? And he says, yes, I've kept all of them. Really, he's looking at the second table, right? the very right. thing that Melanchthon's right. pointing out yep. here. And then Jesus takes it a step further. And why does Jesus take it a step further? Because he knows his heart. He knows the orientation of his heart. He always knows that. God always knows that. And so he takes a step further, and he knows that his God is his money, the thing that the world trumps up. And where does that lead him to? But he walks away sorrowful. And, and, and this leads us to the question that we all come to sooner or later at some point in life. And, and we see it a lot on times on deathbed and so forth, but you know, what's it all about? Like what, what, what hope do I have for what's about to happen here or, or for the future and so forth. And, and, and that's where it does not do well to put our trust, to put our hope in any of our works or our reason or any of that, just put our trust squarely in Christ and his mercy and grace, um, that, that he has done it for you. He has fulfilled all righteousness and you're saved. So trust it, believe it. When Jesus looks at that young man and he says, it's the text says that he loves him. That means that he went to the cross and died for him. We don't know what his future actually held, whether or not he came to faith after the resurrection, but we know that those words are written that you might hear them now and come to faith yourself, that you might know that Jesus has, in fact, taken care of the entire thing for you with the death, the resurrection, and the cross, and now is established the office of the ministry, baptism, the sacraments, all of this, that you might have confidence in this, that these things might be given to you again and again, that on your deathbed and on the day of judgment, you stand boldly and confess I'm justified by Jesus. My guests, Pastor, oh my goodness, here we go. Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul Winehill and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois. Pastor Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstead, Illinois, here on Concord Matters, seeking to be of one mind in Christ. Why? Because the comfort of the gospel is so sweet. Oh, how sweet it is. You don't want to lose it. Keep preaching it. Make sure you hear it this weekend as well. We'll catch you guys next time. Rock on.